Hi, hey, hello. Welcome to episode 13 of Trail Society brought to you again this week by our friends over at Strava. I am Corinne Malcolm. I'm Keely Henninger. And I'm Hillary Allen. We are so happy once again to have Strava on board for this mini series that we're doing, these five episodes, and they're really helping us out. And if you don't have a, a Strava subscription yet, give it a try. We mentioned last time all these features that we like as part of that Strava subscription, including route building, matched efforts, segment leaderboards, and much, much more. And it starts at $5 a month. So that's a cup of coffee. Uh, if you can swing it, get on board. It's really, really cool to get to play in that community. Um, before we got on air live recording, it's been kind of a wild week for all of us. And I'm so happy to be sitting here on a Friday, looking at your smiling faces. <laughs> Likewise. <laughs> I mean, beanies, beanies all around. No, I'm not wearing a beanie, but um, everyone's at home. I think right now I'm at home. I'm blurry today, but um, I had like a super weird health scare over the weekend in which my entire right side of my face was swollen and I kind of look like I've undergone a chemical peel at this point, which I've been told people pay really good money for. So that's a bonus. Um, but it's, it's, I think we've all been fighting our way into 2022 is kind of the vibe I think we're bringing. Yeah, totally. This, I, ha I had some like Pacific Northwesty weather here in Boulder. Um, <laughs> it was like freezing rain and literally I didn't even drive my car anywhere because, uh, and I was like running on the pavement on my way home from my trail run and I kept my spikes on. It was treacherous. So it looked huge. Yeah. Both we don't get, guys. we don't really get icy rain. So okay. not sure what you're talking about. <laughs> Mud. They get mud. Mud. Get okay. A ton of mud. We get more like warmer rain. It's still cold, but it's not freezing typically. So then it's just everything's just super, super wet. Yeah. Which, you know, arguably so not not fun either. But Keely lives like a thousand feet higher than everyone else in Portland. So she gets snow and everyone else yep. gets rain. So she lives in this little um, I've gotten to I've gotten to be there. Um, this little angelic world up up high on skyline and uh it's really really cool to wake up to snow up there i've got to i've got to imagine in portland yeah it was magical and it snowed like the day after christmas like three or four inches up here and so i got to do like a proper snow run in portland before any of my east coast friends got snow while boulder had no snow so it was just this weird world i was in the snowy fairyland and nobody else that normally gets snow had gotten snow so I felt pretty special, but then as soon as I left, it turned to ice and then all of forest park was a skating rink. And so nobody could run. <laughs> so I think I got the best, the best running day in as well. Um, I don't, we don't have too much trail specific news this week. We're going to have some more trail specific stuff, both from on the race front and also on the contract front, which you guys all really liked last time, kind of talking about what contracts look like for people. Um, and we've got some movement in our community and we're going to talk about that more, um, next time around, but we had, some really cool running results in the road world at the Houston marathon and half marathon this past weekend. And I don't know, Keely, if you want to kick that off, but it was, I was just blown away and the stories are so cool coming out of it. Yeah. Oh my goodness. This is such a cool weekend for women's running. Um, so for those of you who don't know what happened at Houston, so we'll start in the marathon. Um, so the women's U S marathon record was broken. 
which had stood since 2006 by Dina Castor. And it was broken by a woman named Kira DeMato. And I don't know if I'm saying that correctly, so I'll apologize ahead of time if it's wrong. Um, but she is 37 years young and she had just returned to running after a pretty long hiatus after a really successful collegiate career um, at American University. Um, but she started running again later in life uh, and has just been crushing it and is a mom Two and kids. a realtor and has a job and had only been running professionally for the last like year and a half and just absolutely crushed it. And it was so cool to see if you guys haven't checked her out, I would reach it, like go look at her story and like the messages she's putting out into the world are just absolutely amazing. I think her tweet immediately after setting the new USA American women's record for the marathon, she said something along the lines of, I keep getting messages from people telling me that they saw me do it and they want to do it. And I'm so excited to see the next person break my record. And she's like, so encouraging for female runners and just like an absolute a plus athlete out there, like representing women. I have chills just like thinking about that. And I think that her story is one of those stories where when we've talked about like the Olympic trial standard getting changed, this is who it impacts. It impacts people like Kara who came back into the sport and had this tangible thing to chase and then progressively lit that world on fire. And so, you know, that's something to, to think about when we, when we talk about these Olympic trials, qualifying standards and what that means for exciting women in sport. But so, so cool to see a 37 year old mom of two just yeah. run sub 220, like so fast. Insane. And yeah. for a record that was that long standing, like 2006, mm-hmm. like that's incredible. I mean, and also, I mean, she was the women's 10 mile world record holder as well. And that happened, you know, pretty recently as well after her long hiatus of from, from professional running at least. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think what's going on right now in the world of women's running with Molly Seidel and Kira and all these people crushing records and getting medals is that we're almost rewriting the training books, right? There's not this one path fits all now. It's not, you must run in high school and college and go directly into professional running and then continue running for your entire life to get these records. Like there's a lot of different paths we can take to finding our own potential and reaching these new heights in, in, in distance running. And I feel like that in itself is super, super exciting. I think Shalane Flanagan had a Instagram post today or yesterday, recently this week. Um, and she basically said like the thing that's exciting her about this generation of runners is that they all seem to be having a good time. Like they all seem to be actually enjoying themselves. And, and Molly Seidel has talked about this, about how it's like, I can have fun and take myself seriously. Like just because I'm having fun doesn't mean that I don't care or that I'm not working hard and that kind of stuff. So I think this is really cool dynamic to see mm-hmm. all these really cool personalities and styles of training and different paths into the sport or back into the sport, like find a lot of success. Um, and it, and it's just like the boon, the women's distance boon and high performance, like piece of that puzzle is Oh, like Barry. I mean, we're going to get to talk about this for years and years to come because I think you, yeah, let's it's example, right? Like she's inspiring other women to get out there and do the same thing. So that leads us to the half marathon uh, at Houston as well. That was also insanely fast. Yeah. And this was Miss Sarah Hall, who we're not strangers to. She's been in the sport for a very long time now. Um, and she got a new U.S. women's half marathon record running 107.15, about 10 seconds faster than the previous record. Um, and she's been a little bit more on that, what you would call a stereotypical running path, I guess, because she's been running forever. She was All-American at Stanford, went professional afterwards, and has been running professionally since 
the early 2000s, right? Standout high school runner as well, like a footlocker yeah. champion type type of runner. Like she's, we, we've seen Sarah Hall for, I mean, before mm-hmm. any, the three of us were probably running at this point, you know? Yeah. And, but the cool thing about her is that she's been open about having times of her career where she's needed to reevaluate her self-worth in running and almost like take a step back and, and maybe adopt something new in her life that gives her joy as well. And so like along this journey, she's done a lot of different things, but one of the bigger things that I thought was awesome, she took time in 2009 and adopted four children from Ethiopia and obviously gave her her life a little bit different of a purpose at that time. And, and just has continually stuck with the training and the journey and has not accepted that at her age, she shouldn't be able to do these things. Instead, she's like embraced her age and embraced her experience. And, and it's, it's paying off. She's absolutely crushing it. She just ran a super fast marathon time this past year as well. That was close to that U S marathon record. It was the second fastest in women's time. And so she's been on a terror this year as well. And it's really cool to see her and now, and her husband now both hold the half marathon record for American Americans. So that's, that's really cool. Yeah. Obviously Sarah, Sarah Hall's husband is, is Ryan Hall, who they kind of, when he retired, they kind of shifted the focus to her, which I think has been a cool story for them to share about how it's like, okay, it's my, I'm, it's now Sarah's time. Like my energy is going into, in, into Sarah's running and their family really supports Sarah's running and their, their daughters, their adopted daughters from Ethiopia who they adopted siblings, which is really, really cool. Um, are also now running in the U S um, they, they like, they share a lot about their family and it's a very, it's a very cool, um, I don't know. It, it, it brings you all the warm, fuzzy feels let's put it that way. Um, but I think that Sarah's an athlete that races a lot, races pretty darn well almost all the time, but, you know, didn't make the Olympics this last time around. And so I would really, I really, really hope that things come together for her so that she can make an Olympic team this next time around. But I also know that like winning a marathon major would, I think also check that, that like I did it list for her. And so I think we're going to see some really cool things out of Sarah Hall in the marathon in the next four years. And something I just wanted to add about Sarah that, you know, I've been following her for a while and um, something that just really inspires me is, you know, she's competing at that high of a level. And I think she, she posted about this publicly, but saying how she didn't want to have any goals that ripped her out of the present moment. And so that her and Ryan, they kind of reshifted, um, reshifted things and said that they're going after a feeling, not a specific time. And I think that can be how trail, how trail. Right. Is all trail. Yeah, yeah, that's what Will I we thought. convert her. I don't, I know. don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but that's something that I just thought was so cool. And even, you know, even in our last episode talking about, you know, this intangible thing and trail and, you know, how do you specify training load? And like I was talking about rate of perceived effort going by feel. And, you know, she's obviously doing the work, but it's really cool to see her publicly kind of embracing this non-traditional style of training for these intense, you know, half and road marathons. So. Yeah. Very, very cool. I think the next, the other thing kind of on our list was that, you know, races are kind of getting finalized. People are finalizing their race seasons. Um, golden trail stuff that we covered a little bit this past year, because we've got some fast friends that throw down at this stuff, the sub sub ultra distance. Um, they're kind of reverting back to what they did in 2019 pre pandemic, where they've got their, their global series in which people compete to make the final. Um, but then they also are going to continue with their national trail series. And so the North American golden trail series is officially set, I think for the coming year with it being broken arrow, um, in June, followed by Whistler Alpine Meadow 50K and Quebec Mega Trail, um, Pikes Peak Ascent, which moved later in September to 
to not conflict with some other stuff going on. Um, and then Flagstaff Sky Peaks 26K will be the finale for the U.S. series. So it's kind of like they're merging with what used to be, I think, like the U.S. North American Sky Running Series in a lot of ways. It's a lot of those races are kind of coming in, but they're still going to do a, a national series. And then there's going to be the big global series with races like Sears and All and Zagama um, that will culminate in a, a big world kind of finale that all of our speedies like Rachel Drake and Danny Moreno will be throwing down at Bailey Kowalczyk will be throwing down at, at a, for our sub, our sub ultra folks. But I think the big thing with golden trail series is that once again, you know, kind of under the Solomon, um, empire, let's say, let's call it, you know, like they, they are partnered with courts and we've got some problems with courts and, um, I've had a lot of athletes reach out to me. I just released another podcast with a good friend, a good friend called named Finn on his single track, um, podcast. And we talked a lot about courts on that and we're getting athletes reaching back out to us about the courts issue. So keep, if you are interested in understanding more about what is going on with courts and anti-doping in our sport, um, listen, I I'd recommend listening to that episode with Finn. We can link it in the show notes. Also listening to our previous episode on courts and what's going on there, because it's going to take a lot of athlete action um, to stand up for our, our rights in the sport to stand up against, you know, basically what they're going to call legal doping. Um, basically they're anti TUE or therapeutic use exemptions. So if you use an inhaler, they've got a problem with you. So, um, reach out to us. If you need to know more, if you want to know more, if you want to know how you can get involved, if you want to know how you can make an impact there, because it's going to be, it's going to be an issue. And they say that they're led by medical experts, but they're not, they're not following the science. Um, they don't really know what's going on and it's, it's going to steer the UTMB series and a bunch of other series. And so if you, you're not anti anti-doping by not liking courts. Okay. So ping us, let us know if you need information. We're going to try to, I'm personally working on putting together a letter that will go to the Pilates and UTMB series, um, that athletes will be able to sign on to, um, to kind of voice our concern with the courts program. So, um, you can reach out to us about that and we'll let you know when we get it launched um because it's it's controlling our sport and it's important that we have a voice in it yeah and the the funny thing about that is like it's this this entity that's trying to control our sport by being strictly in the gray zone like they're not in black or white zone they are in gray zone and one of my favorite quotes from the solomon world series page is um, as follows so it says the courts event program is managed by a medical commission solely composed of doctors this medical commission can take advice from experts of its choice and specifically give a consultative consultative advice to the race direction on the participant's medical condition. Yeah, Don't know what, what is, that means. What does that mean? <laughs> what does that mean? And, and, and from talking to people like the Pilates, like they they don't know what's going on. They, they have friends within courts and they think, and, and court says, Hey, we're going to provide you with anti-doping. And so they say, yes. And that's not, yeah. that's not the issue or that, 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 that is an issue. So, um, yeah, we got to figure out what the gray zone is here and, and why, what the rules actually are. Cause that's, right. that's the problem that rules yeah. are not clear. Yeah. Cause courts is gaining momentum as races are gaining momentum and offering more prize money and, and trail running is becoming more of an avenue for people to make a living off of at the same time that courts is gaining momentum and trying to provide these guidelines in a not very scientific or succinct or black and white way. So it's very hard to, have this rise in our sport to be able to make a living off it, but also have this rise in this entity that could actually completely turn off your career, right? Could completely stop your, your potential to, to earn a potential or a living off of this. So mm -hmm. just an interesting time in our sport. Yeah. 
Very, yeah. very interesting. And it's, yeah. it's your, it is it for a lot of athletes, it's going to be your career on the line. And I wouldn't trust quartz with your career mm-hmm. is what we'll Agreed. say ba- based, based on, based on the, the way they run their program, based on the, the lack of, uh, let's say the lack of way they're on their program. It's not WADA. It's not USADA. It's, um, you know, a very much, a much looser program. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to trust my career to them. So, um, yeah, we'll continue to, to be people who beat a drum. I think about this because some, someone has to, and it's, I think athletes are, are rightfully maybe so worried that, you know, speaking out is not in their best interest, but, um, you know, we, I think we can do this in a very impactful manner and a very tactful manner. So, um, we'll, we'll continue to circle back on, on that, uh, that topic that apparently is a very sore subject for all of us. (laughs) (laughs) Um, but I think we're ready to dive into the meat and potatoes of our episode today. Um, we've alluded to these Strava segments in our last episode, they motivate us, they scare us, they let us see where you stack up against others and also against ourselves. And so Strava took that and they turned these stories that we tell ourselves and that we tell others into this really cool series of short films. And we're we're kind of teasing you a little bit because they have not come out quite yet, but they're going to be released in two parts. You're gonna be able to get them online. We'll share them on all of our feeds as they come out. but they're really cool films. We've gotten, we've all gotten a sneak peek at them. Um, and they're going to inspire you and motivate you. And I watched, I watched one this morning before I went up for my bike ride and it was great. Um, the one that we're gonna talk about today hits pretty close to home for all three of us. And it features our very own heli goat. And I'm betting you can probably guess the topic, right? Maybe, maybe not. We're going to dive deeper today into the topic of mental health in relation to the injured athlete, right? We've all been there. We've all had our ups and downs with injury and recovery. Some of us are actively going through that right now. It's not linear always. It can be really, really hard, but this topic is so important to all of us because it involves not only your physical health and well-being that we will continue to harp on, but also your emotional health and well-being. And so I'd like, we can all share here, but I'd like for the two of you, you know, kind of broad strokes, like what is the first emotion that rises to the surface when you think about injury and recovery? Oh, who wants to go first? There's no wrong answer. There's no wrong answer. I mean, I have one and it's, um, the first thing that, that comes, it's a feeling as well as an emotion. It's this heaviness and this sadness, uh, for me personally. Got it. Yeah. I would say mistrust is my first um, like palpable thought where I all of a sudden just question every single thing I've done over the past, you know, be it half a year to a year. And I, I start to distrust myself right away. Like all of my trust goes out the window. It changes your narrative, right? Mm -hmm. You've been like, I'm, I've always been, and I think Caitlin Gerben feels this way. It's like, I'm really durable. I'm so freaking durable. I can do hard things. And then to be sidelined by an injury that is the exact opposite of that makes you question your durability, makes you question the things that you want to do. And Keely, you pulled a quote from uh, the film, the Hilly's film that we're going to talk more about today that you guys will all get to watch very, very soon um, was the quote of, I was just scratching the surface of my potential. And then it was all taken away from me. And I think we can all relate to that, right? This feeling of like, immense and sudden loss in our running. 
Um, do you have anything kind of to go off of there, Hilly, at all, like about that feeling or, or like walking through that mentally? Yeah. So, I mean, obviously I've had numerous injuries. And so, uh, you know, we're not just talking about like, you know, the, the big, the big accident that I've had. I think that like a lot of people have, have gone through, um, have, have, you know, they're familiar with, um, mine is just, it's kind of post that, like these other injuries that I've had kind of as a result. And every time I, you know, feel like I'm just getting back there to kind of either the status quo or, you know, about to reach the next level. And then, and then I got injured and, you know, whether it's a goal for a race, working towards a new distance or, you know, breaking through and being able to, to, to run these workouts again at a certain time, I just, it felt like I was kind of on the precipice. And then it was just, you know, it's like when you, the best feeling to describe it is like, you know, like if anyone's done it false summits, you know, you reach what you think is the summit and then you're like, oh my goodness, there's there's a whole there's other more? mountain range that I didn't realize is part of this trail that never ends. So. Yeah. That's, I, like I think that. I like that. It is a false summit. You're like, gosh, darn it all. I thought we were there. No, nope. I, th- you can also think of that false summit in a really good light too, as, as sometimes you don't realize your own potential. Right. And like mm-hmm. maybe for so long while you're figuring out your training, you're always at this false summit and you think it's your, your peak. And then as soon as you like train some change something up or you get injured in your face to reset, you all, you, you build back and you almost realize like, Oh, that is actually way lower than my potential. And that feeling is so cool. I like that. We're going to, it's, it's a new frame shift. Okay. So you're not, you're not plateauing. You're at a false summit. Okay. Okay. You're not, you don't want to be stuck there forever either. No, no, you don't want to be stuck (laughs) on a plateau or a false summit forever, but you know, maybe, maybe it's not a plateau. Maybe it's a false summit and you're about to like round the corner and it's going to be really, really cool. Um, we're going to talk more about that and more about kind of like that aspect of patience and self-compassion here in a second, but we're going to dive into kind of the, the, you know, the, the groundwork of this story. Um, and if you're a Boulder athlete, many of you are, um, you're probably familiar with green mountain. It's a stomping ground for the local runners. It's the backyard hill. It's a place that you can come back to over and over again. Some people like to come back to it over and over and over and over and over again, if you're a hilly goat. Um, And hilly, that's where your kind of segment story started off. And it started off in one direction. Um, You're going to use it as a super cool way to promote your book. You know, do this big, big thing on it. This big kind of, what, what a fun way to like do a press release. And then that story suddenly veered off in another direction. So I'm wondering if you can walk us through this evolving relationship that you have with Green Mountain and where your segment story began. Yeah. So, I mean, I think everyone, I love Green Mountain just because it represents more than just a trail to me. Um, It was kind of the very beginning of my ultra running career in many ways. It was my first taste of what mountain running, you know, would look like going on steep trails. And it was a place that I returned to many times, um, hiking, uh, you know, throughout my recovery, it was there with me as I returned to run post accident. And it was there with me when I returned to run post ankle break. Um, and so green mountain just meant it held this special place in my heart because I, I felt like it was this one trail that was always there. And as I was evolving as an athlete and healing, and again, it was, you know, kind of how I was, how I would explore that within myself. And so again, like, as you mentioned, I was planning on Everstein Green Mountain, something that Corinne, I know you've done and on Mount Tan and your local hill. Um, and, uh, 
Keely, I'm not sure. Have you done it? <laughs> I will. I will never do that. No, <laughs> <laughs> Wise woman. Um, but uh, so it was something I was doing because it was uh, when my book was launching. I felt like it was the perfect metaphor. And um, there was about 14 chapters in my book, and I think it's 13 laps to to Everest Green Mountain. So I wanted to do a bonus lap just for you know kicks, you know, to to you know to to make the whole like metaphor make sense and. As I was training for it, you know, I was, you know, putting in the miles, feeling healthy. Um, but there was just, there was one run and something happened. I think I stepped on a rock, not really sure. Um, maybe it was a stress reaction that I didn't really know was there. Um, but it, I broke my foot. And instead of Everstein on the launch date of my book, I had surgery. Um literally two days after. So I remember walking to the store, posting a photo on, you know, my two feet where I could walk. And then the two days later I was in a boot and I was on crutches for five weeks. Um, and you know, Strava and I, we've had, you know, pretty awesome relationship. I mean, I mentioned on the last episode that I found Strava when I was recovering from my accident and, you know, used it as kind of this positive training metric of like, Oh wow, I feel ready. Um, and instead of, you know, giving up on me and the project that they had, they stuck with it and they kind of took a different angle. And this is also part of, you know, the, the, the team that was, that was, you know, with me for, um, you know, the filming of this project, Cody Coleman, he's a, he's a, uh, a filmmaker here in Boulder and Luke Webster, he was the producer on the project. You know, they decided that, you know, this is a story that needs to be told and Strava was right there, you know, with me. And so we shifted to, you know, what is this honest viewpoint of where these athletes have to go when they're injured and they need to recover? And, you know, hopefully I'm not the, you know, the poster child for recovery and injury. I sure hope not. Um, but I think the whole takeaway I would like for this film, um, if it had one takeaway is you know, you're, again, you're, you're stronger than you think you are. And even I might, you know, be a poster child of, of, you know, recovering injury, but I hope I'm a poster child of resilience and like the hard work, um, both physically, but really mentally that it takes to get through these hard moments in our lives. Yeah. Green Mountain really became like a metaphor for, for mental as well as physical recovery, right? Like it, it was like, it, it was, it's been with you through many many injuries. It was a segment, I think on green mountain that our coach, Adam St. Pierre, he was in charge of your Strava account. Hilly didn't actually want to see any of her Strava stuff, but Adam was tracking her Strava stuff for her. And he said, Hey, Hilly, like you're, you're ready. Like you're, you're, you're a runner, you're a runner again, type of thing. So it feels like there's, there is this really cool metaphor there and injuries aren't uncommon in our sport. All three of us have had our fair share of injuries, um, over the past couple of years. And I'm wondering from both of you, like how can athletes develop patience and self-compassion during their recovery process? Cause that is maybe the hardest part. Man. So, I mean, I think that's just such a hard question, especially for like your first injury, right? Because the first thing you think about when you're injured is not compassion. It's nothing resembling compassion. It's complete hatred or confusion or anger towards, towards what you did to your body and what your body didn't do back, like what your body did and failed. Um, and so I think compassion is something you learn over time as you do experience maybe one of those injuries that hopefully by having this dialogue, we kind of can elicit to, to those who maybe aren't injured yet to have when they do become injured, because 
it is going to happen in your probably career as a runner at some point, small or big. Um, but I, I think, um, what it comes down to for me is that you need to have compassion to your body to actually accept that it's injured and to give it time and patience to recover. Because the biggest thing I've found in my injury history is that when I've completely disregarded my body, um, and not given it its time to recover is I've never gotten better. It's taken way too long. I, I don't recognize myself because I'm like so angry. I'm fighting my body and not accepting that it needs rest and not just to push in a different way. Um, and so over time, I've just been able to try to give it its compassion in, in terms of just rest and just let it recover. Because if you just channel the energy you have frustrated towards running towards another activity, you're not going to be able to regenerate whatever you broke running. If you're hammering on any other activity, just as much as you did running and keeping your body in that stress state. So that's what I've kind of been focusing yeah. on that acceptance, right? That acceptance becomes super, super important. Hilly, you were quoted, or you said during the film and Keely pulled all these really great quotes out for us. Just like, how am I supposed to learn to walk and run again? Like, what is like, how, how are you able to take that? And like, and maybe, maybe it's community, maybe it's support surrounding you. Maybe it's having that coach or that person. Like, how did you like have to find like patience in that process? And exactly what Keely mentioned, you know, it's this acceptance, because I think, um, what I've learned over time and every time I've gotten injured, I think it was this, the quicker I accepted it, the easier it was to kind of move through the recovery process. But for me, what I'm what really that quote I think is speaking to it, at least in the back of my mind, is this mistrust for my body. And, you know, okay, I know an injury period is a learning opportunity for me. Um, you know, what what isn't going right? What can I do differently? What did I do, you know, almost to kind of get in this situation? And sometimes there's not always a clear answer, but for me, it's, uh, it's, I, I have to learn to trust the process, kind of relinquish control, which I'm not that great at and really lean into recovery, lean into the slower pace of life and learn, uh, what I can to heal my body and, you know, move forward in a different direction so that, you know, I can, you know, avoid this happening again. And, but it's extremely daunting. I mean, you know, I've had to learn how to walk and run again three times and it's doesn't, it doesn't get easier. Um, but there's something to be learned every time from it. Um, and it creates at first mistrust in my body, but then it creates this wonderful, you know, trust again, uh, once I learn, kind of something new. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think that's really interesting. And we're going to talk, we're going to talk more about this in a little bit, but I think we'll dive into it right now is, is that idea of having to regain your confidence, like confidence in your abilities, confidence in your fitness, confidence in your training, um, confidence in the, the, the actual part of your body that you physically broke. I've seen Hilly go for panicked runs before. I get, I get all the, in, I've got all the Hilly insight. If anyone needs any, I don't know, not dirt, we won't call it dirt, but if anyone needs any Hilly insight, my DMs, my DMs are open. I've, I've seen, I've seen you do that, right? Like I, I, I know, I know you in that way. And so I'm wondering, you know, like people might be sitting here, maybe they're not injured yet. Maybe they are actively injured. Like how do we, or maybe, maybe they're at the point where they've done the run walking and now they're getting to run again. Maybe they have signed up for their first race in a long time. I'm doing my first race since February, 2020 in March. And that is both awesome and terrifying. And it's like, I have to trust my body to do this thing. Like, how can we, do you just give in? Like, how, how do we, how do we say all of a sudden, like, okay, I, I have this confidence again, that my body isn't going to fail me. 
Yeah. I mean, I think it can be really hard when it's your first, you know, your first injury, right? Cause I didn't have a road, a roadmap. I had no idea what, what to do. It had never happened to me before. And so I'm, I hope that, you know, with what Strava created with, with this film of mine personally, but also, you know, these, these other films that they're bringing out is I'll speak to mine though, is uh, that there is some sort of hope you have people to learn from. And that was my hope all along by sharing this story that, you know, it doesn't, it's not straightforward. It's not quote unquote pretty, right. It can get pretty ugly, but even embracing that side, I think you can learn from it. And you know, I don't, I didn't do it perfectly. Like, you know, how Corinne mentioned that I would go for these panic runs. Cause I felt like I lost time. I felt like I was, you know, starting, you know, miles back from the rest of the pack, you know, and I had to catch up and, but maybe I learned the hard way that that doesn't work. It led to, you know, like maybe, you know, setbacks in my recovery. Um, and so embracing that kind of imperfection, but like learning from others and, following along almost in their guidance, not necessarily their footsteps because each, each person's path is their own, but embracing that uncertainty and still moving forward and, you know, being confident that your body knows what to do if you're just willing to listen to it. Oh my goodness. Yeah. I, I absolutely. Um, this is making me think really long and hard about a question that my physical therapist posed to the group the other day. He said, what is the hardest part of the recovery process for you. And he gave examples like, um, you know, building back strength, doing the hard work, but he also kind of let us like noodle it. And I think you're nailing it on the head, right? Like for me, the hardest part of the injury process is never like pushing through a workout or pushing through a cycling, like arm cycling bout or whatever it is that you're trying to do to gain back that fitness. It's actually trusting that your body is going to get better and that you're going to be able to get back and like to allow the process to happen. So it's almost like it's more of a mental journey for me than a physical journey, because I think a lot of us listening probably can resonate to the fact that we are very good at doing hard things and doing very painful things. And most of the time, that's not the most important part of the recovery journey. It's, it's the mental side to really just gain that trust back. Yeah. I feel like we've all probably had this experience. I remember having this experience in high school. So as a, as a freshman in high school, sophomore in high school, I don't remember. I avulsed the growth plate off my hip. So I like basically tore the growth plate off my hip, um, running cross country great, just a great start to things. Um, but essentially like, I remember like basically every fall I would have this like hip pain and there was a wild me having to be like, is this, is this real pain or is this anxiety? Like, is this like, is my, does my hip actually hurt? Or is it like, I'm back in the same place. I'm doing the same workouts. I'm running, I'm running. Like, I, I think all of us have had that experience coming back from injury where you're like, is this good pain or bad pain? And that's, that, that's not always easy. Right. And, and, and putting together guidelines for yourself of like, okay, if it's above this on the scale, if it's above a four, it's bad pain. Or if it's, if it feels this specific way, or if it lingers for this long, it's bad pain and, and deciding with your physical therapist or with your orthopedic specialist, whoever it might be, what those guidelines are can help you. I think weed through some of that, because that's so hard. Mm-hmm. Like I'm, I'm going to struggle with that for sure when I run way too cool and March is like, Oh, is this, is this normal? Like, is this the normal 50 K pain? Or is this, mm-hmm. I broke my pelvis a year ago pain like that. That's going to be really hard to wade through. And part of it's going to, a, a huge part of it's going to be psychological. 
And it's so important to, to recognize that. And, and that was something I've had to work through a lot of times, you know, and we talked about this with UTMB when I had to pull out and I dropped out, you know, when I, when we were talking about it, there was definitely a physical pain and I knew I did something wrong, but there's also that huge psychological pain. And as soon as I like felt that, you know, it was just like, I don't want to do this again. I can't go through this again. And it's almost that, you know, preservation, right. And it's really hard to be able to, to figure out what, what is actually true pain or what's kind of that, I think that reminiscent pain, um, from like how I described it when I, the first emotion that comes to me when I think about injury is sadness. So, you know, and I think that's also why, it's a topic that's near and dear to my heart. And it's something that I think is so important, um, personally, but as well as just, you know, professionally, um, is mental health and the psychological aspect of what athletes have to go through. I mean, we pour our heart and soul into this sport. I think anyone does, it's not just professional athletes and, you know, that's not just physical work. It's a lot of mental and emotional work. And so we need to take care of ourselves from that aspect. And there is a mourning period when, you know, injuries happen. And I think for me as well, like you mentioned, that's the hardest part to be able to work through. Yeah. It's like, we're, we're mostly giving you things to ruminate here about. We're not going to, we're not giving you any answers, but I think that's important <laughs> is that you're all on your own journey. And I think that comparison trap that we, that we talked about last time, right? Like comparison, I think it's, is it a Teddy Roosevelt quote that says comparison is the thief of joy. Um, that, but like, it's that, it's that self-comparison. It's that comparison to other people's recovery. It's like, I think I had three friends all break an ankle in like a month long span and everyone had a different recovery trajectory. I think it was like Dylan had his ankle issue. Maybe Hill, you might've had an ankle in, in Keeley. And then my friend, Sarah Kai's like everyone broke their ankle in the same like time period. But you know, every break's a little different. Every body's a little different. Every recovery process is a little different. And the amount of time that each person had to take off was vastly different. Right. And so it's so easy to get caught up in like, uh, oh, well, if you do this, this is how you come back from it. Yeah. And another piece too, is like, I know, you know, I actually emailed Keely not too long ago about it's like an ankle routine, right? Cause you know, with my ankle that I broke and then my foot that I broke, I've noticed that there's just differences and how I have to take care of my body to, to train. Right. We've talked about, I, I don't train like the typical ultra runner, right. I don't really think anyone has, you know, a typical training, but, um, it's also the mental part, like running on the ice this week. It's, I felt stressed. how psychologically hard was that? Yes. It's, it's incredibly hard. I felt like my body tense and it's taken me years to work through that. And I literally have to tell myself like, breathe Hillary, like relax, like try, like focus on and even stride. Like I try to like have the yoga vo voice of like deep breath, like meditation, you know, I try <laughs> I saying yoga words, meditation, yeah. Shavasana, warrior one, Hillary. <laughs> downward dog. Yeah, <laughs> seriously. I think I was like saying it to myself because I was trying to relax myself because if I'm tense, then that changes my gait and that could lead to, you know, another fall, but it's taking me years and I have to practice it, but that doesn't mean that those feelings just go away. I mean, I, I have those fears. I mean, when I did TDS after my ankle break in 2019, I ran the whole race with poles on the uphill and on the downhill because it helped me kind of create more confidence. And, and I felt like I was, if I had a little trip up, I could stabilize myself with the poles. And then now as I've gotten more confident with it, um, you know, downhill running or just running in general, you know, and 
mobility in my ankles, it's, it's gotten better, but it's not something that I can just forget about or, you know, just assume that's not there from a psychological kind of trauma. So yeah, I think this is a good little a little shift for us. And this is kind of like one of the last like big, big questions I have on this. And it's it's something that you pointed out. And I think it's a conversation that we've had as a group a bunch. And it has to go to like our identity as a runner and that loss, that feeling of loss of identity and self-worth. And so you mentioned this in the video, but to, to be completely honest and transparent with everyone, like I was also on the receiving end of many calls and texts with Hilly during the injury this spring. Um, I had been in Boulder right before it happened. We went for a, a, a triple on the mountain. Like we, this is, this is literally a week before I found out that I was super injured. So it was, we just had a great time. Um, and you know, like you need that person in your corner that's going to talk you off the ledge a little bit. And that can be your coach. That can be a good friend. Um, and, and it was so apparent in these texts and in these calls that like you were rocked emotionally, right? Like everything had been ripped away. Like you were facing this, the, another recovery, another learn to run another, like, how long is this going to take? Like, is it worth it type, type of sensation? Right. And that's a very potent, real sensation. So how can we, how can people think about their identity as a runner and their identity being feeling like they're losing it with injury? Right. And maybe it's because too much of their identity is wrapped up in it. Like how, how have each of you dealt with that? when it comes to these injuries that really limit your ability to run for a long period of time? Oh man. Yeah. That's a really good question. Um, I'd say I agree with you as it's not been an easy journey. I would say when I first used to get injured, it would turn into, um, like it would manifest into all of my being. So all of a sudden I felt like a really shitty friend, a really bad partner, really bad at my job, bad at everything. And it was all because I had my self-identity tied into how I worked out or how I was running as an athlete. And when I wasn't running as being a healthy athlete, I translated that to how I was being as a human. And it ended up being really negative because then it was kind of just this downward spiral where I felt like I couldn't do anything correctly and that I was bad at everything. And I think it really took, um, getting injured more than once to like reevaluate my self-worth. And I don't want this to have to be anybody else's experience. And I don't think it should have to be, but I think talking about it will help is that we aren't defined by how we run, right? Like at the end of the day, we're defined by like who we are as a person and like what we bring to the table with our friendships, our relationships and our like happiness and joy in the world. And I feel like we can build this web of like relationships and accomplishments and things you really are passionate about. And we can get that all tied up in our lives and that can encompass running and running can be a part of it, but it should be something that like when it's time comes, you can cut it off that web and like leave it by itself and like be a very functional human being without it. And, and obviously that takes a long time to build up, but if you, if you prioritize just like living your life to, to increase your happiness and like fill yourself with joy through other things outside of running, it will help when that one thing is taken away, you'll be able to fill it with a lot of other things. Um, and yeah, not easier said than like a lot easier said than done. I'm still not mastered it completely, but I will say like trying to put that together so that you have a bigger web of things that like make up your life and make up your identity and make you happy, um, is really key. Yeah. Different rocks, like different rocks that are your foundation, as opposed to this, as opposed to running being your only foundation. Hilly, what did you find kind of through that process of like removing your identity and self-worth from, from this one thing? 
Yeah. You know, it's like I said, like Keely said, I'm definitely not perfect at it. And for me, it's really important. Like I definitely relied on you, Corinne and, you know, my coach, uh, Adam and, you know, my friends here, my really good friend, Elise, um, you know, she was here with me. She's a, she's a hardo. And what I mean by that is that she tells you exactly how it is. I I love Elise. We can give her all the shout outs. (laughs) I was just so thankful for her because, you know, she, she, and with that, like, you know, she's a hardo. She, she, she tells it exactly like it is. And she wasn't going to let me kind of fall into this abyss that maybe I felt like I was. And at the end of the day, I wasn't going to let myself do it either, but I was feeling it really hard. And you know, almost harder than I had ever felt it before. And I think it was because I was, you know, using, I was using running as a, it's a huge source source of joy for me, but it created this point where I had to turn inward and I had almost, you know, it's like this teeter totter, like the balance, the balance had shifted. And so there was a lot of, you know, as athletes, we have to put a lot of effort into training and the physical act of running, but that's not everything. And if it gets too imbalanced, especially for me, that's where I can become unhappy. And, um, for that, I had to turn inward and, and almost rediscover that I was made of other things. And, the huge thing, the huge irony of it all was that I was celebrating a book launch and (laughs) about, about injury, about, (laughs) about being strong and like all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. And I had this other thing, these other passions in life. And so it was, it was great. I mean, it was serendipitous because I could, you know, really focus on that and really lean into it. Um, but I mean, this sounds strange, but I almost, I had to reread portions of the book because I had forgotten that I had gone through that. And that I had the strength to do it again. And the whole reason why I wrote the book was to challenge other people and, and, and challenge them and show them like, look, you can be resilient too. You can be strong too. And I, I had the opportunity to learn it again. And like Keely mentioned, I think it's a huge, it's a huge point for me and a huge reminder to take that balance with me every day, not just when I'm injured. So feeding these other portions of myself that make me a whole human instead of just getting joy and accomplishment uh, from from running or racing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, I had this interesting realization um, uh, like Monday. And this is this is going back to the fact that like I had this weird health scare over the weekend. So right when Haley got hurt this spring, I also discovered that I had a massive injury and was looking at at least six weeks off of no running altogether. Um, at least, and then kind of building from there. And, and oddly enough, it was the calmest I've ever been about an injury in my entire life. I was like almost excited. Like, I think I was probably ready for a break, um, in a lot of ways. And I didn't really know that, um, because like, that was the easiest six weeks I've ever taken off. Like was totally, was honestly and weirdly, and maybe in hindsight, totally fine. Um, I've got a long history of overtraining and some other stuff. And I think that that has like protected that psych for me that Hilly's talked about before. Like I, I can, I have these other things that I'm really passionate about that I can pull my energy into. Um, also having a dog, super helpful. Totally just recommend getting a dog. Um, but with this health scare over the weekend, I, my face was super swollen and I couldn't run and or ride or do any, or do anything comfortably really. And that was way harder. Like I took three days off of training and that, that was, that was hard, you know, and that was very different than the six weeks before I could even start run walking again that I had last year. And it was this thing of like, oh, it's because I think when you're 
it is, it is when you're really, when you're primed, when you're really, really primed for something and you, and you're building and you have momentum getting rocked, I think like can, can hit a little harder and just like having that moment of reflection of like, okay, where, where, where are my eggs and what baskets are they in? And what am I investing my time and my energy into that I need to feed forward? Because this is a good reminder. So hopefully you all don't have to have reminders and you can, we can be your reminder for you. And I coached junior skiing for a long time. And this was a conversation I had with 11 year olds. Um, so if we can have this conversation with 11 year olds, we can have it with all of you too. And they'd be super nervous before a race. And I'd say, Hey, like, and so this is not just about like getting to exercise, but getting to race and getting to perform. They'd be super nervous. And I'd be like, Hey, look, like, are your parents still going to love you independent of how today goes? And they'd be like, well, yeah. And I'd be like, okay, like, are your siblings still going to love you independent of if you're good or bad today? Well, yeah. And I was like, am I still going to care about you? Like independent of if you do good or bad. And they were like, yeah. And I'm like, okay. Then like, what are we worried about? Cause like, no matter the outcome, like your parents love you, your siblings love you, your team loves you. Like I love you. Like why? Like, mm-hmm. you know, like trying to take that mentality and that mindset into, into running into your identity with running and exercise and into sports performance, I think can be a lesson that we try to instill in our like general psyche because it's so much easier to race when you're not worried about yourself, your self-value and your self-worth being reflected in these results. So totally what you just said, Corinne gave me chills. Like when I broke my pelvis, I've had never been as relieved as I was when it was broken. And I, I needed that time off so badly, but I was denying it for myself because I had all of these like ambitions of like what I should be doing next and what was next and what was next. And I was never listening and I was never taking time off. And I needed that time so badly. And it was like the best time for an injury I could have ever asked for, even though it was obviously awful. (laughs) Yeah. And it's like hindsight, right. Teaches us a lot. And I'm not, we're not telling you to go break your pelvis or your ankle or your foot or anything like that, or get some sort of weird allergic reaction and get an epi, get a shot at epi, but there are things that you can do to kind of set yourself up for, for just success in, in career, in, in running, in life in general, right. That, that feels, you know, that you, you are grounded in values. And I've had, had a lot of conversations recently with people in our mental sport, our mental, our mental, let's call it performance sports sphere, Addie Bracey, Neil Palace, Justin Ross, these people who are very, very very brilliant when it comes to sports psych. I'm actually, for those watching, although it's blurry, we'll see if it'll focus. <laughs> nope. It's too smart. There we go. Um, this is Addie Brace's book, mental training for the ultra for ultra running, a psychological skills guidebook for ultra success. Um, and it, I like, I want to get 30 copies and send it to all my athletes. Um, because I think working through something like that, which gives you these really tangible skills, like, what are your values? And values are different than goals, right? Like what's going to ground you when your goals go out the window, your values, or what are you going to do when you have to cope with adversity or what are you going to, how are you going to emotionally bounce back from a physical setback? Like there are, there are skills that are beyond the scope of our expertise, but by, by u- utilizing people like Addie Bracey and their specific skill set, like I think that's great homework. And you might find that some of it's really challenging. Like, what is my why? I don't know. Sometimes it changes. But spending time doing that, I know Hilly loves writing. Like spending time making a practice of like evaluating your your values, your goals, your whys, 
your, how are you going to cope in a situation like that? I think is what sets people up for success over than just like hoping that when you do ultimately, you know, break your ankle that you're okay. Right. Like, have you guys found anything specific and maybe it's just experience and all of us having gone through it very, very personally, like how, what are other things that people can, can do to try to set themselves up for if, and when they have that big failure at work or in running or in their physical well-being. Yeah. So I, I mean, I love that book also that Addie wrote. Um, I also have a copy here (laughs) and one thing that I think it's great to, to read these things. Right. And, but then it can seem like, oh man, like I have to, at least for me, do do the homework. Right. But that's a good thing. Instead of having it be like a negative, like, oh, I'm so bad at these things, like practice it and start really small. You know how I mentioned, like literally when I was saying this, like Shavasana or like some random stuff on the trail, like actually practicing it. Cause I think what goes on between our ears is so important. And if I know I can personally go into kind of when I'm stressed, like this spiraling of negativity and, you know, thinking like, oh my gosh, like, cause I'm scared because I don't want to get injured again. Um, so, but instead of that, trying to reframe it and starting small. And I think it starts with recognizing if you have negative thoughts or kind of these negative um, tendencies, right. And switching them into a positive and then using that also, I think, you know, as a springboard, Addie talks about this in her book, you know, problems are going to happen in a race, in training, you know, Corinne, recovery is not linear year. You know this, Keely, you know this too. And being a true scientist, which we all are, and problem solving our way through it to kind of work through the net, the obstacle instead of seeing it as a complete block. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, taking that into daily life is, is a huge step forward. Oh yeah. That's a really good idea. And nice like I said, you can... Book. You can still have a melty. You can still, if you need to go sit on a rock and have a melty, that's totally okay. Melty. Yeah, the, yeah. Melties are, 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 you know, we try to avoid them in certain contexts and sometimes it's because you just need a snack, but sometimes <laughs> you really need to have a melty. And that might just mean going for a run and sitting on a rock in the sun and grounding yourself and talking in your yoga voice or whatever voice you need to talk in. And like, just feeling it for a hot second. Like you're not, you don't have to, we're not going to pretend that it's easy or pretend yeah. that we're perfect or pretend that, you know, you don't, you don't have to, that you, that, that you can feel it all without it being derailing. But I think it's, totally. you know, you got to practice those things. Yeah. So. And I think like being present really helps with your ability to like think about and, and live with other things. Because in my mind, when I was really unhealthy with all my running habits, like every single thing I did in the day was around something related to running or performance. And I couldn't dissociate the two. So I wasn't able to be present when I was with my friends. I wasn't present with work because I was always fixated on these things. And so I think just getting in the like practice of trying to be present in whatever thing, thing you're, you're doing and then leaving them behind. So like being really present in your run and then packaging it up and putting it away for a little bit, because like you were there and you did it and you did great. And then it can be put away so that you can focus that energy somewhere else that also can bring you joy. And you can be more present and make better like connections with people that you're around because you're all in and you're present there. Um, and that's something that like, I've definitely been working on and I think could really, really help in, in cases of setback or, or injury or just time when you want to take off from running. Yeah. And I think kind of the best way to sum that up before we dive into our society slam for today is, um, I think Keely, you pulled a Alexi Pappas book quote, and it says, 
We constantly go through life trying to prove our personal laws to be true. We create laws based off prior experiences so that when we encounter scenarios that are vaguely similar in the future, your brain reacts with irrational intensity. It governs everything, physiology, psychology, health. You need to be able to change your personal laws by making a conscious choice to be something else, something new. You have to make these conscious choices so often that they become part of you. And I think that's, you know, that's, we all got some chills. Those are like that psychological flexibility right there. And I think that that is a great kind of way to sum up, you know, that, that need to, to feel it, to see it, to adjust to it and to allow yourself space to, to change to those scenarios so that you're not just this irrational intensity of reaction. So. Yeah. I love that. And I think it like, it's, you know, her book title is, you know, like bravery. And I think that that it's like being brave enough and having the courage to, to do exactly what she's, what, what Alexi, what Alexis is like talking about. So, yeah. Yeah. Thank you, Alexi. We're just going <laughs> to use all your words from here on out and seem really <laughs> philosophical and, and deep, but we're going to dive into, we're going to round out today with our society slam. And again, society slam is brought to you by our good friends over at aura ring. We're all, we've all got our aura rings that we've been running around in now for a couple months that are pretty cool. Um, Keely, I know that you have been kind of looking at some features recently in it, and I'm wondering if you can share a little bit about some of the stuff that you've been digging into. Yeah. So aura ring tracks body temperature and it also tracks your heart rate, um, overnight and your heart rate variability while you're sleeping. And so it gives you, um, like an overall heart rate variability score, a sleep score, and it kind of looks at your body temperature fluctuations over the course of your sleep cycle. So it gives you a, a rating for each night. Um, and what was really cool this past week, um, was that my menstrual cycle was coming and my heart rate variability was going down. My heart rate average overnight was going up and my body temperature was elevated. And so all of a sudden my aura ring kept telling me that my sleep was a little bit impaired and that I was sleeping less. My body temperature was elevated and you could see this trend, right. Going up over time. And it was just really cool to witness. Um, and it was, my period actually came like a day late this month than normal. I know a day late, it's not really anything, but mine's pretty good lately, but I could see that it actually was completely reflected in the trends of the, of the body temperature over time where it started increasing. And then it tapered off about two days before I got my cycle. And it asked me like, did you get your cycle today? Basically two days before I got it and the day I got it and I clicked yes. And so it'll continue to learn about my body and my physiological parameters and how they change before and after my cycle and hopefully get even more accurate in the future. But I thought that was super cool because I was like, why am I so like feeling a little more tired. And then you just kind of look at these trends in the data and it's, it's pretty cool. Yeah. And it'll be cool to track, track over time. There's a lot of, as we all know, there's a lot of individual variability, both, both like between, like say between all of us, right? Like we're all gonna be very different as far as how our cycles impact all that, but also like even cycle to cycle. So it'll be cool to see kind of what that looks like, um, moving forward. But I think a cool thing to touch on here, which I think is a really prevalent society slam was kind of talking about that heart rate stuff. And in part, you posed this question after our last podcast about, you know, like how, well, I'm just dropping shit over here. Um, how do you like, um, how do you convince people that other forms of training, like cross training, being on the bike, whatever it might be is training. And what does that look like? And you got some responses from people over social media, both on Twitter and Instagram. And I'm wondering if you can share kind of some of those thoughts and insights. Sure. Yeah. I think the general consensus was, um, 
a lot of people were recommending heart rate, which obviously we are no stranger to heart rate is a very valuable tool for training. However, I think we all know that heart rate is also something that is not tracked in trail running by, by many athletes. And so therefore it doesn't, it's not a great metric because we don't get it. And if we do, it's by a heart rate monitor on the wrist that is typically relatively inaccurate during running. Um, but I also got a lot of other really cool, um, thoughts and it was a, a lot around like power. So obviously on cycling, you can calculate power from wattage based off of how long you held that wattage for. Right. Um, there's not something that's quite as direct for running. And so a lot of people were just like throwing out things around running, how to take into account elevation gain in relation to RPE or rated of perceived exertion, and then like time at different intensities. And so, I think the general consensus is, is like, we still don't know 100%, right? Like is everything you'll encounter in a trail race reflected in your heart rate data? I, I don't know if we can say that 100% would be true. Um, but I do think that like, if we can start getting maybe more trail runners to wear heart rate monitors and start actually monitoring the, the strain that the training is having on them, that could be a good step in the right direction to start quantifying like how a trail run impacts them versus a mountain bike ride versus a, uh, like a road ride versus a ski and like really start to understand how all these things are impacting training load and how they could impact fitness and recovery. Yeah. And I would say what we say about impact there is, and you're not saying like necessarily like it, it's, it's trying to quantify training load in trail runners and there's no because we don't use, you, you don't see a ton of trail runners running around with chest straps, right? Um, it's, it's much, that's much more of a cycling and a Nordic skiing and that kind of, and triathlon, that, that community, it's not so much um, a running community thing. Um, but I do think that there's, there'd be value in that as far as like understanding time at intensity um, in that population. And that like, I, I personally, um, I, when I knew I was gonna spend a ton of time on the bike this past year, although I don't have a bike computer, so I'm not doing power um, I do have a chest strap. And so now like I wear it, I don't run in it all the time, but I do always wear it on the bike because I wore a chest heart rate strap for over a decade as a Nordic skier. So I have a fairly decent sense of what's going on, but like it, for me, it was a way to regulate my intensity on the bike, both to get intensity in when I needed to do a workout on the bike to know that I was going hard enough. And also to like, be like, okay, that was I thought that was an easy endurance ride, but I kind of went hard type of thing because it's a less familiar modality for me than going out for a trail run, let's say. So I think that there is value in figuring out how to quantify training load, particularly as athletes potentially do more multi-sport stuff, either due to weather or injury or seasons um, could be super, super valuable. Yeah. And I was just on a run this morning and we were talking about just trail running in general and how I think heart rate would be really advantageous for a lot of runners because we might finish a trail run and be like, okay, that was an RP of a six out of 10. Right. But during that run, if it was hilly, you, you have a lot of time where that RP is higher than six, most likely, even if you do slow down. And then there's probably a lot of time where it might be lower than six. If you're just running an easy downhill, whereas the whole average run might be a six, there were lots of times throughout were different. Um, which is not quite the same if you're running on a road and doing a, a set pace that RP is staying relatively constant. And so it'd be really cool to look at like, okay, how much time were you at an RP above six and how much time were you below there? And how does that impact like total cumulative load of the training? And how does that impact how many calories were burned and how much food you need to be eating during these sessions and all these things. And it's just this rabbit hole and I absolutely love it, but yeah. So, so if you're using things like training peaks or Strava though, and you can do like, we can set 
say both those use like a normalized graded pace or a grade adjusted pace in which, you know, basically it says on this uphill, if you were running on a flat surface, this is the approximate pace it would be, which doesn't necessarily work if the terrain underfoot is super technical, but if it's, if it's a consistent grade or if it's undulating grade, you can get more information from that. And so that, like I do that all the time with my runners, if they, particularly on long runs, particularly if they're hilly long runs, I'll go in and I'll look at every single climb and I'll say, okay, like, nope, it was all endurance paced. Okay, perfect. Or I can go and I'll highlight it. And particularly my athletes who like go for the SFRC run in the headlands on the weekend. It's like, oh, we actually got some threshold in, you know, we actually got 20 to 30 minutes of threshold work in because these, all these uphills were at a normalized graded pace, uh, you know, equivalent to lactate threshold. So there are tools out there that you can use that are pace derived, um, because in part, like they've been derived because we're not using heart rate and corresponding heart rates at that zone. So there's lots of work to be done. And I hope that more researchers will take some of these questions on so that we can get a better understanding of what we're looking at there. Um, Hilly, do you have any, did you get any interesting society slam material from the audience this past week? Well, I did not related to all of this training, um, this, this training load talk, uh, of course there were just some people that really liked the episode. Um, but something that I wanted to add to, uh, was that with heart rate variability, right. It's, it's another piece that can incorporate kind of like the life stress, right. right. If your heart rate is elevated. And then again, it could be useful to have a heart rate strap when you're running, um, to see that, okay, like, well, actually this, this recovery run was more like an endurance pace because it wasn't, I was feeling maybe a little bit stressed. I didn't sleep well. This is another app, like thing that we can kind of use to, to track. Um, but I think you need to have both right to get more accurate levels. Um, but that was just kind of something that I was thinking about, but I did get this really cool society slam. If you, if, if it's applicable to share, uh-huh. share everything, say share it. <laughs> mine's going to be super weird. So you're, oh, you're good. Okay. Well, okay. So I'm just going to read the whole thing. And this is so funny. I got a message from someone I went to high school with. I haven't seen her for like 10 years. And she, she messaged me and she said, I was listening to trail society and the conversation about how to get more women in ultras. I think dispelling some myths about who ultra runners, like about who, who ultra runners are would be awesome. You don't have to be young, thin, and the most fit person ever. Um, focus on mental toughness and how it's okay to be a mid to the back of the pack runner. I just love what you all are doing on trail society. It's helped me to get past these barriers and just get outside and enjoy it. She says she's a psychologist. And for me, the long days are are proving that I can do hard things, even though I've never been a quote unquote athlete. Thank you so much for what you're doing. I'm loving all the conversations. You all three are inspiring. Okay. Our job's done. Uh, (laughs) Done. Don't have to record another podcast ever again. Um, That's awesome. That's amazing. Mine is, uh, I'm going to hearken back to our owl topic one more time. Um, There are two things. Never going away. Never going away. My in-laws wanted us to know that um, there's a time of the year too, where owls also do this thing called branching in which they are learning to fly. And so they will like coast out of a tree onto the trail. And then they will literally use their beaks and talons to like climb back up the tree. And oh, so gosh. that could be some of that, which I think is like <laughs> insane, but, um, I would cry if I witnessed that. <laughs> But the other piece of the puzzle was, and they also were like, oh, we need to get headbands with uh, out, with, with eyes on the back. That's how you de- deter owls. But um, in that vein, really good friend, um, schemo phenomenon, amazing artist, um, Nikola Rochelle, who's made really cute buffs and stuff in the past. She was like, mm, if you guys need a trail society buff with, with an owl face, some eyes or something on the back, we could make this happen. So Love I think it. that uh, we might need to get some, some, uh, 
animal deterrent buffs that are super adorable, but also very practical made um, with, with Nikki. So uh, if you're interested in getting a, a trail society themed bird deterrent buff, uh, we'll work with our local, with our artist friend uh, to make that happen, which I think would be the funniest <laughs> and most amazing, like, um, you know, merch that we could ever put out. I love it. Okay. That, that's all I got. Anyone got anything else? No, that's it. Okay. Well, as per usual, then slide into our DMS. Okay. Send us your race results. Um, Aravipa constantly got racing going on. So we're keeping an eye on you, Aravipa. Um, y'all, y'all are running fast out in the Arizona desert. Additionally, if you've got topic ideas, we're kind of on, we've got the Strava segment theme going on. We're going to do some women's health stuff. I think after that, um, but if there's anything that you want us to talk about, slide into our DMS, let us know what you're thinking, what you're feeling how we can help make the sport a better place for everyone involved. And until next time, we'll see you on the trails.